Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and hopefully make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to learn other forms of recovery, as well as explore other people's stories, and hopefully share something with an audience that might be struggling with all aspects of recovery. It's my hope that this becomes an aid to others while strengthening my own journey. For the most part, I plan to keep this a little loose. I'm not trying to get overboard with like a structure or have a written script or anything along those lines. The general idea is I'm going to read out of the Daily Stoic, is my form of kind of a daily meditation that sort of helps me start my day or at least process the day before it or even help process the week. It depends. Sometimes the message just goes over my head and I'm not able to make sense of it. Uh, But primarily, I just try to start the day off with something more than my cell phone. I'm going to extrapolate on what I read and then just kind of get right into things. Uh, Since this is one of the first few episodes of this, there's going to be a little bit more exposition kind of front loading these episodes but you know as I progress and I kind of pick up steam there'll be a little less talking before the talking. Overall the plan is to read from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and sort of lend my view as an atheist in kind of understanding things as they're presented on the page. This isn't always easy. The book is very God heavy but I think there's a lot of meat to this. I think there is something in this book particularly that can offer a lot of insight to people that are struggling whether you're an atheist or not. So it's my goal to sort of share that moral psychology that's in there uh, with other people that maybe have chosen this path as their starting or jumping off point to recovery and sobriety. As time progresses and I start to really get the handle on this, I'll have guests on board that'll be able to share their story, be able to share their version of sobriety, different information, different aspects and routes that you can take in recovery, uh, just to kind of provide everybody with a tool set that will give them the best chance of continuing to maintain sobriety in their own life. Uh, but again, it's it's mostly going to come from that atheist aspect. And I promise I'm going to get into the reasons why um, why I even chose AA as my my starting off point myself, why I feel like many people still do, why I think that's just going to end up being the case moving forward, and AA's importance in the recovery world as as well as just 12-step programming in general. Uh, but for now, let's just, you know, I'm going to try to keep to this, the structure that I've set up for myself, the small bit of it that it, there is, and then uh, I'll get into the details of that, and then we'll get into the book a little bit. So these first couple of episodes are actually back-to-back, so the Stoic reading is going to end up being back-to-back. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get a few together and out there uh, when I launched, so that's why there's a little bit more of kind of a uh, one day after another if you listen to these episodes in congruency. Moving forward, I can't guarantee what day I'll be doing this podcast, so it's just going to be kind of a mix of what I end up reading from. As I've said before, it doesn't really, I think, matter. It's not like it's a Zodiac. The days don't only, it's not like June 29th is always going to need this reading, if that makes sense. But this is June 29th reading. No excuses. It is possible to curb your arrogance 
to overcome pleasure and pain, to rise above your ambition, and to not be angry with stupid and ungrateful people. Yes, even to care for them. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 8.8. I was just born this way. I never learned anything different. My parents are a terrible example. Everyone else does it. What are these? Excuses that people use to justify staying as they are instead of striving to become better. Of course, it's possible to curb our arrogance, control our anger, and be a caring person. How do you think others do it? Certainly their parents weren't perfect. They didn't come out of the womb incapable of ego or immune to temptation. They worked on it. They made it a priority. They solved it like they would solve any other problem. By dedicating themselves to finding a solution, making incremental progress until they did. They became who they are, just like you can. So honestly, if if you if you did listen to the first episode, that that previous reading was no self-flagellation needed. This one, no excuses. I feel like the two kind of play off each other, and it's beneficial for me right now because I, I did have a lot of excuses as to why I wasn't even going to make this podcast. Just like I had a million excuses as to why I didn't really feel like I needed to go to meetings anymore or any other aspect of my life. I've always had very good reasons not to do things. I've never had good enough reasons not to do things. Uh, to be quite honest, as far as like things that benefited me, when I look at all of the different ventures I've started, the businesses I almost started, the relationships I was almost successful in, the jobs I almost did a great job in, I always had an excuse as to why I needed to just stop, either quit entirely or just not really put a lot of effort into it. And those excuses all sounded pretty much the same as to what I just read. You know, I was just born this way. I just struggle with this stuff. It's never, I struggle with this stuff right now. It's, I just struggle with this stuff. It's a statement of fact, and it ends up becoming kind of just a regurgitated phrase that I tell uh, people that I meet or people in my life. You know, I have a hard time remembering things. So that's just it. Like, that's just the fact. I don't make a lot of effort to make improvements on those issues I might have in life. Not, not always the case. You know, I, I have a hard time remembering where I put things like my wallet and my keys. So I've set up a kind of a little program for myself. My wallet goes in the same pocket. My keys go in the same pocket. Before I shut the door, I do the little pat down dance thing. And then uh, once I am sure that I have everything, then I go about my day. And so the fact that I can set that up and make an improvement on something that I usually struggle with just means that I can do that in other aspects of my life. And I just choose not to. Now, it's interesting. I, I don't feel that the actual meditation or the phrasing that Marcus Aurelius put forth really lines up with the explanation of what that phrasing is supposed to be. What I get from that little first snippet here, what Marcus Aurelius actually said, it, it, it is possible to curb your arrogance to overcome pleasure and pain to rise above your ambition and to not be angry with stupid and ungrateful people. Yes, even to care for them. To me, that that kind of more feels like coming from an aspect of forgiveness. Like, don't don't get stuck on the fact that other people aren't as smart as you or are acting stupid. That's not the primary concern right now. The primary concern is to just sort of put those things aside and focus on the better of you that needs to come forth. And maybe I'm misreading that or not quite understanding what it is that's actually being said. That does happen. But those words, the, the way that they're joined together really make it seem like rising above not just yourself but rising above the things that are in you that get triggered by other people you know, when somebody's stupid in traffic they do something that pisses you off and, I, and i'm speaking for me but i'm using the you euphemism to just sort of help kind of relay the the message when, when i'm stuck in traffic somebody cuts me off for the most part i lose maybe a millisecond of my day but 
I can choose to just get pissed off about that and have that just be who I am. Somebody who gets mad in traffic. I just have a hard time in traffic because everybody else is just so stupid kind of a, you know, situation. Really, I could just rise above it and just not care. Like, as long as they didn't actually put me in danger and they just did something that maybe stalled me for a second, overall, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really going to make much difference on my day. It's not going to do much to how the rest of my day goes, my week, my month, my year. Now, if I continue to allow that to anger me, by the time I get to work, I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm now taking that anger out on other people. And that's how I've chosen to start my day. But when I choose to just sort of let that slide and like it says, rise above my arrogance in assuming that I've never cut anybody off or that I've never done something to make traffic more difficult for other people, then not only do I forget all about that instance before I even make it to work, but I also kind of forgive them for being that way. Not forgive them, for, maybe they're awful people, I don't know but I just let it slide. In this instance, it doesn't seem to really make much difference on my day outside of how I choose to go about reacting to it. So I think that's kind of more what I'm getting out of this than the idea that I shouldn't make excuses. Now, both are pertinent in my life and both make sense to me, uh, but it's weird that those two don't seem to line up as far as like how they relate to each other. All right, so why did I choose to make a podcast that's devoted to helping other atheists navigate a program like AA uh, in general and potentially other programs that might be a little God heavy. Why wouldn't I just choose a program that's designed for atheists or even a, a section of AA that is, you know, secular in nature and maybe reads from a different book and has a different program? There's a few reasons, and I hope I can bring this all into a, a connected point because there's there's kind of a lot of ideas for me in this I, I have a tendency to kind of uh, go off a little bit into different directions and on different tangents so I'm going to try my best to kind of rein this in in the best way possible the first thing is that AA has a power to it it's it's one of the longest forms of recovery that has a real track record and a community setup that allows people to if they allow it feel at home and feel a part of something now, while I don't know that this is necessarily the only program that offers that kind of inclusivity, it's been my experience that there's just something a little different about the AA program and what it can offer as far as a community goes that just can't really be found in other programs. I've tried SMART, albeit very briefly, uh, but when I asked other people what the, you know, hey, do you guys go out after? Do you guys hang out? Like, do you exchange numbers? Like, what's the sponsorship kind of situation? Do you have a mentor? How does that kind of thing work? What it really sounded like was, honestly, nothing more than kind of a CBT meeting. Like, you just show up, you share, and then you leave. And then you don't really communicate with anybody that's in the group anymore. You just go about your day as a person in sobriety. There isn't a lot of focus on giving back or almost recruitment style, you know, bringing the next person in, kind of being outside yourself as you do it, kind of a focus. Now, that might not be true. I might have just misunderstood that whole program. And that's why I'm going to have people on that represent these, not represent, but participate in these different programs so I can get their perspectives, you know, maybe into a different light. It has been a long time since I've explored other avenues or other types of recovery. And I have multiple experiences with AA under different circumstances. I have an experience as kind of a younger person in AA who was an atheist but sort of a go-getter kind of an atheist uh, or at least participant of AA I went after getting meetings started and did the whole like you know deal when it came to that kind of thing but I also wasn't really sold yet on sobriety so I can't really use that as a form of judgment on how the whole process worked but I can use it as sort of a form of judgment on how my experiences in AA were because I got to witness the fellowship in kind of full force then I got to see 
people struggle and find hope amongst their peers and inclusivity when people came in just wrecked you know with life a uh, a tendency to kind of group around those that needed it and just you know fun times like we had a regular speaker meeting that went off every week and i got to know people that put that meeting together and that became a part of my fellowship saturday nights were you know going to a a speaker meeting making jokes and having fun and getting to know you know people and their kids and just hearing these stories from people from all over the world that at times would just be speaking into my soul and you know the The con side of that was, yes, quite often I didn't feel 100% welcome there by some of the members. I think in a lot of ways they were coming from a place where they were really more protecting their own beliefs than attacking me. And I could kind of understand that, you know, the idea that, you know, this, this God thing you've been believing in may not be necessary kind of hurts people's identity and I didn't want to do that that wasn't my purpose in this but I also wasn't about to conform to something I didn't believe in I still very strongly believe that AA can 100% help anybody including somebody who doesn't believe and the reason why I believe that and again this is kind of I'm bouncing all over the place I know I am but it, it will all come together I promise the reason that I believe that AA is open to people that don't believe. There's a few. The main one, though, is A has been translated into multiple languages. It's been pushed all over the world. There are there are countries that have Muslim beliefs that have embraced AA that are all different forms of Christianity. I think there's Jewish versions of the AA program. All these different religions that you can plug into the AA program. And what that means to me is if you can plug any religion into this program, then you can plug none. Then then one, it just sort of proves the lack of need for belief. If any belief system will work, then none will too. And it also just sort of helps solidify in me that if any belief is good enough for AA, regardless of if it's Christianity or Catholicism or Islam, and you get the same results from that, then that just sort of also helps prove to me that faith isn't necessary regardless. And maybe that's not quite right, but, you know, the religion thing is the redundancy and the program itself works fine. I don't want to wax too philosophical or get too deep in religion or push too heavily against those things yet a lot of that's going to come out just in the reading and my own story and exploring other people's stories the other reason why i really strongly feel that alcoholics anonymous has kind of grown into being more inclusive or can be more inclusive comes from something that bill wilson wrote in 1965 it's included in this pamphlet It took fucking like 50 years for AA to finally at least put a very small pamphlet out uh, encouraging atheists and agnostics to participate in AA. And and it wasn't the kind of weird message that's in the book about agnostics. And we'll get to that eventually. Um, But here's the here's the little snippet. Uh, AA co-founder Bill Wilson wrote in 1965, We have atheists and agnostics. We have people of nearly every race, culture, and religion. In AA, we are supposed to be bound together in the kinship of a common suffering. Consequently, the full individual liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy, whatever, should be a first consideration for us all. Let us not, therefore, pressure anyone with our individual or even collective views. Let us instead accord each other the respect and love that is to every human being as he tries to make his way toward the light let us always try to be inclusive rather than exclusive let us remember that each alcoholic among us is a member of aa so long as he or she declares you know bill wilson was a pretty flawed human being he was a great man 
in a lot of ways, uh, but he was pretty flawed as well. And the more I got to know the history of AA and more his story in the history of AA, the more I came to understand that if this thing can come about from somebody as flawed as him, then there's hope for me. And then as I learned that he had kind of come around to understanding a little bit more about atheists and agnostics because he realized that those types of people were coming to his program or at least the program he had helped start he learned more about them and eventually became able to relay that message to other people now a pan the pamphlet still does a little bit of pandering it still kind of pushes the idea that well if you can't say the word god then just say good orderly direction or group of drunks you don't have to say the word god just use a euphemism of the word god which to me again if you're fucking islamic you know, it also says it's important to remember that AA is not a religious organization. But I will remind people that primarily the Lord's Prayer is read after the end of every meeting. It's pretty rare that they don't start off or end with some kind of Judaic prayer or meditation. And on occasion, it's the serenity prayer. If you're lucky, it's the responsibility statement. One of the groups that I regularly attended, that's the secular group that I attended. That's how we ended meetings. By and large, you know, the, the 12 steps are written from a, a very specific type of religious viewpoint, a very ty specific type of, of spirituality uh, that, that, you know, that's fine. It makes sense. It, it was written by a bunch of white dudes that believed in God. So, of course, there's going to be God stuff in it. It has, over time, kind of opened up uh, to include a lot more people and sort of accept the fact that it isn't strictly Christian. Let's just be realistic. The the, pri the primary religion that embodies AA is Christianity, and a lot of its messages within the pages, within the steps, and within the people that, that practice it. Now, going back to that pamphlet and the kind of idea that this was their best effort to include atheists and agnostics, and I'm not mad. I'm really not mad about that. From this spawned a lot of meetings sprouting up that claim to be secular, that claim to be without God. Now, I don't know if necessarily that this pamphlet is what started like Beyond Belief and other groups within AA, but it did help groups like the one I go to, which is just secular sobriety, to sort of exist within AA. You know, we have a seat at the general meetings or general assemblies or whatever those different, you know, aspects of the organization are called. We have a vote. We have, we, we put in money and we have an opportunity to sit at the table. And that's a lot of growth because that was really fought against for a long time. Things move really slowly the deeper into the actual organization of AA that you get. And the thing that moved the slowest was the inclusion of atheists and agnostics. Everybody felt that it was just enough that they had a chapter in the big book that addressed agnostics. Whether or not it was actually of any accuracy to what agnostics or atheists actually believe wasn't important. That was enough to them. So just getting this pamphlet was a big fight, and I personally am satisfied with it. And I'm satisfied with the efforts that have been made. I don't need this program to turn into an atheist-specific program or an agnostic-specific program. I just need to feel that inclusion. Now, yes, I could absolutely just continue to go to secular AA groups and just call that a day. But what I found, and I think I've said this in the previous meeting, is that there's just a different kind of a fellowship at the regular, normal meetings. Yeah, sometimes I have to grit my teeth because somebody finds God in that meeting and basically tells tells me that I need to do the same. When that's not there, and it's not as often as I'm making it seem, there's just kind of a warmth that exists in regular meetings that I just haven't been able to find anywhere else. And that's why I feel like it's important that I relay my message my version of recovery that does revolve around AA and that makes it so that I feel comfortable going to these regular meetings because I feel like I'm 
giving myself the opportunity to one, not only allow myself to always be able to go to a meeting should I ever need one, two, feel like I'm included in the entire program of AA and not just some kind of an outcast that has to sort of beg for scraps. And three, it allows me to continue to spread my message to people that maybe feel like that that's the only form of Alcoholics Anonymous that's out there and are struggling with the idea that they're never going to be able to make that recovery fit into their life. I'm not going to lie, man. AA is a weird place. Just like religion, AA has different versions of AA. There are meetings that are very, very old school. There are meetings that are so kind of so far left from center, you wouldn't even recognize them as a meeting. There's one meeting where it's it's encouraged to interrupt people while they share and talk shit and throw things. You know, there's there's meetings where as you're reading the, you know, the preamble and the, the 12 steps, it's kind of the entire room's job to try to make you mess up. Now, you would go to that meeting and have a hard time, potentially not ever go back, or you go to that meeting and find your new home. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, is that AA is broad enough that it allows these different types types of meetings to exist. So I encourage anybody listening before we even get any further into any of this, if you are struggling with the version of AA that you've been presented, keep looking. You'll find your home or your tribe. And if you don't, I hope I can offer you a different type of recovery soon. I hope I can offer you a different form of staying sober because it's really just the start of all this is not drinking. And if AA isn't what's helping you not drink, then maybe SMART will be. Maybe some of these other programs that have cropped up, maybe Dharma Recovery is. I personally have just found it within the halls of AA. A lot of it was just my previous experiences with AA. A lot of it is just that feeling, like I said, of inclusion, of knowing that I can go pretty much anywhere in the world and find a meeting and feel like I'm at home. Part of it is the familiarity. A lot of it is just needing a plan for life. I said in my last one that I did. I used to kind of rebel against the idea that I needed a set of rules to tell me how to live my life. And after, you know, so many hits and misses and back and forths and, and dumb ideas and thinking I knew the answers and never having any of them right, I'm perfectly willing and, and more than happy to accept that I have this sort of laid out plan that thousands of people have already followed and have succeeded in life. Just, just some of them just because they gave themselves over to this program. So that's fine. If, if I can find happiness, here and I don't have to like sell my soul and I, I, I'm not becoming a part of Scientology and there's no like recruitment brainwashing requirements that like the primary message is to like help the other alcoholic that's still suffering and to think outside myself and to not be a fucking dick like that seems pretty simple and reasonable I've heard people say that AA is a little culty and yeah probably it's culty in the way that there isn't one leader fucking everybody literally you're not ha- you're not required to give up all your money and your financial assets you don't have to kill anybody uh it's preferred that you don't um you just have to show up with the desire not to drink and hopefully go home feeling a little bit better pretty much it you know and if it is culty and it is a cult i guess i'm willing to sign up for that because like i said already i just didn't have the answers and there is no reason to feel like for me there's no reason for me to feel like i'm i'm too stupid to figure this out on my own i don't know why i would assume that that's a requirement for life is that you'd be fully capable of solving life's mysteries without any help without any guidance and that the that in some weird way i was failing because i chose to try to figure it out on my own and failed i don't think that's really how it works I think over time, we all just end up finding a set of ideals that works for us. And I just happen to be lucky enough that because I can't control how I drink, there's a 
rule set already figured out for me. And if I don't understand how it works, I can ask somebody in that program to kind of explain it to me in a way that makes sense. That doesn't mean that I buy and believe every aspect of this program. Clearly, I have issues with some of it. But as far as going back to what I said in regards to why I've chosen this program over others is I'm just going to double down on it. There is a fellowship here that just cannot be found anywhere else, or at least in my experience, isn't really to be found anywhere else. This is one thing I feel the religion gets right, is they have communities that are built around their religion that are stronger than any other communities I've seen. And while they're built around something I feel there's no reason to believe in, the, the sinew that creates these communities when they are healthy is is just incredibly strong. It's it's a very real sense of not just belonging, but comfort and protection and safety. And I feel that when I'm in AA, when I'm participating in the program, when I'm actually becoming an advocate for my own sobriety and others. And I feel that without having to praise Jesus. And I don't know that I could find that anywhere else. I've tried like I said, to find something similar. And maybe I did in my youth when I found those other misfit kids that drank like I did. And maybe I found it later in other groups of, of friends. And I have in a way found it in my little cosplay community. But what a lot of those miss and what a lot of just any kind of community misses um, is the regular meeting. Showing up every week. Showing up every other couple days. But showing up to the same place, you know, you get you get to know your meetings, you get to know the people that are in those meetings and you see each other every day or every week or hell, even every month. And you build a relationship with those people, even if you don't necessarily talk to them, that you just really can't build any other way. You know, when I was younger, the way that I made friends was I just showed up at the coffee shop. And we got to know each other at that coffee shop. And I just showed up on a regular basis. Before that, it was high school. As we grow older... Um, we start losing access to the things that we go to regularly. When I was drinking, it was the bar. So that's where I got to know people was the bar, and I got to see them every week. While those relationships were built kind of around something a little bit more detrimental than trying to stay sober, a lot of the communities I've tried to belong to outside of AA are missing that component, that regular structured kind of meeting. You know, the bar had its own rituals, the coffee shop had its own rituals, and now AA has rituals it can offer me that allow me to participate in a way that makes me part of the community. Now, I feel like I'm getting a little cyclical here, and I'm kind of stepping back over some of the points I've already made. Uh, but to kind of wrap this all up, I've chosen AA because I feel like there's a community that I just can't find anywhere else. I feel like the program of AA offers that moral psychology that they've talked about in the, in the program uh, that just gives me a rule for life that allows me to be less of a dick, a better human being to my fellows, and gives me an opportunity to give back sometimes just by showing up. And there is an accessibility to this program. Like I said, I could go right now. I'm in Portland. I could fly to Boston. When I got there, I could probably find a meeting. I could fly to Spain, and there's probably going to be a meeting. Mexico, there's so many places in the world that I could go, and I could probably find a meeting. Now, I probably won't be as welcome there as an atheist as I would in other places, but the fact remains is I wouldn't be kicked out. They'd help me stay sober that day. They'd find me help if I needed it. If I showed up homeless somewhere, they'd get me resources to at least point me in the right direction to get my shit together and get back on my feet. If I told them I was new in town, I'd get a whole log of phone numbers of people who would pick up as soon as I called. That's no little thing. So yeah, so that's why I've chosen AA. I feel like that's why a lot of people will have chosen AA even as an atheist. Like I said, I do attend a secular meeting, or I did fairly regularly. I was uh, 
a chairperson there. You know, I helped with with the meeting. I I, I attended the business meetings. I participated. Um, I think I signed up or was going to be the GSR at one point. Um, I ended up taking a step back from a lot of that mainly because of you know issues I created for myself. But I just got lazy, man. Just the bottom line there. But I just find myself going back to regular meetings. There's an importance there of going to a secular meeting. I get a lot of viewpoints from other people, uh, people that practice Buddhism and make it work in their program of recovery. I get I get to meet people that used to be heavily religious and found atheism. I get to meet people that aren't sure of where they are in that whole spectrum, but just didn't feel as fully included in the regular meetings. I get to meet people that have never gone to a regular meeting and have only been to secular meetings. And so I get different aspects of how to stay sober. I just get different ways of doing this. And I think that's also important is while AA is the choice I've made, Alcoholics Anonymous is the direction I'm choosing to go for the most part. It's not the only one. And I can add all these little bits of all these other ones to make it a little bit better, a little bit more tailor-made to me, a little bit more custom-fitting, which I also really like. And so, yeah, the purpose of the podcast is to sort of, like I said, just relay everything I can about this program that I've learned over the years, all the mistakes I've made in the hopes that others don't have to make them, or at least feel like they're not the only ones to have made them, Uh, relay my experience, strength, and hope in a way that maybe somebody out there who's struggling with this stuff can hear some answers. I am in no way trying to replace a standard, like, sponsorship. I'm not trying to replace going to meetings. I'm not trying to be a replacement at all. Uh, I'm just hoping to be that in between. You know, maybe you're out in the the sticks. You can't get to a meeting and you just need a little bit of recovery in your day. Maybe you're on your way to work and you don't want to listen to the bullshit jock news radio or whatever. You just want to hear someone's story. Whatever the case may be, I just hope that this is going to lead whoever chooses to listen to this down a path that just makes them a little bit stronger in their recovery. I personally found myself with not very much in front of my next drink. I didn't have a lot of barriers. There weren't a lot of steps from me just being sober to me drinking. There was just nothing in between that. So while for me, making this podcast is now a responsibility that I've set up to put just one more thing in front of that drink, I'm hoping that listening to it will be the same for you. You know, hopefully someday I'll either get to meet you or you'll be able to message me or send me an email. Maybe you'll tell me that I that I helped you out in a tough spot or that I relayed a message to you that you hadn't heard before or hearing so-and-so's story, you know, brought something to you that you just re- were missing or needed to hear. Maybe I say something that pisses you off enough that you need to act on it and you send me a message and we have a discourse about it and I learn something new. Whatever the case may be, my interest isn't just purely selfish in that I want this to be this hugely successful podcast or or anything along those lines. If only two people end up listening to this and one of them is myself because I want to make sure I didn't make any fuck ups after I upload this thing, then I'll be happy. I'll feel like I have succeeded. To be quite honest, if nobody ever listens to this and I still manage to maintain a weekly upload for more than six months then i'll have felt like that's a success because it takes thought and effort to put this together it makes me think about my sobriety it makes me think of what i'm going to say next as far as my sobriety goes and even just doing these two episodes i can already tell that i'm not satisfied with the way that i've been going about things in my own life and therefore i'm willing to start making active changes 
like I said, to participate in my sobriety. So it's another reason why I've decided to structure my podcast in this way in that I start out with a little bit of kind of just talking about either my day or the daily meditation or just something I've been kind of working myself through or some sort of a struggle I've overcome or I need help overcoming. Um, And then going into reading the book and then just kind of riffing on things as they come up. It's just this sort of relationship I had with my sponsor and hope to have again. What we did was exactly that. We would start out with just kind of catching up how the day was going and then we would get right into reading and anytime either of us needed to say something or or kind of riff on it, we would. And there'd be times where we wouldn't make it more than a page. We would try to make it at least like a portion of a, we'd try to make it through like a section, like a paragraph, not a paragraph, but like a, a numbered portion of it, you know, like Bob's story or something like that. But like I said, there's times where we would make it just halfway down the page and that's all we would get to and we would talk the whole hour about what we just read on that page. So I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book. I don't plan on reading the entire thing. I plan on reading the first 164 pages and the pages that come before it. Um, For now, if it works out and I feel like that this has got a good pace, then I'll read the stories in the back as well. But I'm hoping that by the time I get through a good halfway point of this thing, then I'll be able to start having guests on. We'll see what kind of format I have with that. Uh, But for now, I think I'm just going to get right into the book and I kind of end the podcast the way that I hope the next set of episodes goes. So just as I did with my sponsor, I'm going to start with the forward to the first edition. Uh, This is the forward as it appeared in the first printing of the first edition in 1939. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we are sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. You know, it's funny, this part reminds me of when I first came to AA and I was, you know, young and just all about it and just felt that, yeah, man, I just really wish other people would just start doing all the stuff that we learn in AA. And I, I just was so on fire about it. And I just, I was sitting there, I was telling my sponsor, I was like, man, I just, I just feel like the whole world could use this. Like everybody in the world, if they started going to something like this, then, then they would be better people too. And he was like, you know, most of the world already does, man. They just don't need to completely wreck their lives in order to get here. They just figure it out ahead of time. And we kind of talked back. This is a different sponsor. We kind of talked back and forth about that. And yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, the idea of don't be a dick isn't new. So it's not like AA had just discovered something that no other person had ever discovered before. Yeah, it just kind of reminds me of that, like, you know, pink cloud phase of my early, early recovery. Anyways, uh, it is important that we remain anonymous because we are too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal appeals which may result from this publication. Being mostly business or professional folk, we could not well carry on our occupations in such an event. We'd like it understood that our alcoholic work is an avocation. When writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge each of our fellowship to omit his personal name, designating himself instead as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very earnestly, we ask the press also to observe this request, for otherwise we shall be greatly handicapped. As an aside to this, I am one of the people that thinks that this portion of things kind of needs to be updated. I don't think we should continue to live in the same kind of anonymity that they were required to live in in the late to early 
30s and 40s like it, just things have updated we just fucking facebook has sort of ruined the anonymity for a lot of people as far as that goes and honestly the stigma around alcoholism has changed so much that i don't think it's job ending if you say you're an alcoholic my boss knows i'm an alcoholic she knows i go to meetings it wasn't required of my position and it didn't do anything to change our relationship i just am a person who feels like more people should know because i think there's people that when they find out that somebody has confidence in their recovery enough so that they tell other people that they're more willing to come to you and say they have a problem. Anyways, we are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. There are no fees or dues whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. We are not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, nor do we oppose anyone. We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. We shall be interested to hear from those who are getting results from this book, particularly from those who have commenced work with other alcoholics. We should like to be helpful to such cases. Inquiry by scientific, medical, and religious societies will be welcomed. Forward to the second edition. Since the original forward of this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Our earliest printing voiced the hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Already continues the early text. Twos and threes and five of us have sprung up in other communities. It's a really weirdly worded sentence structure. 16 years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation of 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovering alcoholics. Groups are to be found in each of the United States and all of the provinces of Canada. AA has flourishing communities in the British Isles, the Scandinavian countries, South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. All told, promising beginnings have been made in some 50 foreign countries and U.S. possessions. Goddamn, they spoke weird back then. Some are just now taking shape in Asia. Many of our friends encourage us by saying that this is but a beginning, only the augury of a much larger future ahead. The spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck at Akron, Ohio in June 19. 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drinking obsession by a sudden spiritual experience, following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Oxford groups, but they they were a very strictly religious group. It's interesting because they don't consider themselves religious, but they, they were pretty hardcore in their beliefs. What's important there is Dr. Bob came from that, so what kind of gets told over the years if you listen to folks talk about the history of AA is Dr. Bob was the religious side of AA. Bill Wilson was the pragmatic philosophical side. What more accurately was the case was that Bob was the religious side and Wilson knew that you couldn't market that. So he injected regular kind of the moral psychology part in the hopes that he could sell it to a broader audience because he was a salesman. Bill Wilson was trying to make money, plain and simple. Now, I know that might harm some folks who think that Bill Wilson was this altruistic, almost godlike figure. That just wasn't really the case. He wanted to get sober, and that's very true, but he also wanted to market this in a way that it would make money. He wanted it to make money. That's why he sold a book. Now, he didn't want to make money in the sense that he, he didn't want to be a Rockefeller, but he also wasn't trying to scrape by, if you get my get, get my drift. Now, that isn't to say that 
Bill Wilson wasn't incredibly interested in staying sober. That, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson met because Bill had figured out how to stay sober, at least for a short term. But he had a business failing that almost led to his relapse. In, In an attempt to stave that off, he found other alcoholics in the area that might need help. And that's how he ended up meeting Dr. Bob. While they did come together to write the book, they didn't always agree on what should happen after, how the meetings should be ran, how the approach should go moving forward. Um, It seems like, from what I understand, Bob was really going for a very more religious version of things, and Bill had a different idea. He wanted wanted this to hit every single newsstand in the world. He wanted everybody in the world to have access to the ability to get sober, but he was very money-motivated. He was a businessman and a salesman, so that part of him just wasn't going to go away because he was sober. If anything, they probably helped him to continue to maintain his sobriety because that's just you know that was just his jam now this isn't dr william d silkworth or the dr bob that does the doctor's opinion in the big book this is this is basically the co-founder of alcoholics anonymous who just also happened to be a doctor and as someone said in a meeting uh, he was a doctor that worked in assholes not on assholes like dr silkworth did anyways back to back to the reading here oh the reason why i brought that up was because it's important to kind of know that originally uh there was a lot of oxford group kind of injected into this and that's where the more i mean it says that the oxford group didn't consider themselves a religious organization but that's where a lot of the god stuff came from uh is dr bob's interest in the oxford group and the the feeling that he had some sort of spiritual awakening this this massive event that could only be attributed to God. Like a lot of that came from from him specifically. Uh, so back to the reading. He had also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism who is now accounted no less than a me- medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism. Though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford groups, he was convinced of the need for moral inventory, confession of personality defects, uh, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief and dependence upon God. Now, again, it's important to note that at this point, really, atheism wasn't just even a thing. Like, the idea of being godless just didn't even seem like an option to most of these people. It seemed like when, when folks back then talked about atheism or atheists, their their version of it was more like somebody who still believed in God but just was really upset with it. Like something had happened in their life, like they lost a parent to cancer and they were mad at God. And that's not quite obviously that's not quite what atheism is. And it is for some folks. The the rejection of God is the for them just the rejection of that that god as their savior not the disbelief of it and that is a little different um and it, it you'll see as they explain more of what they think an atheist is that that's kind of the direction that they're coming from because they just really understand what it was to be atheist they didn't understand what it was to be agnostic in their minds you were christian or you weren't and that's a lot to do with how they were raised with the information that was at hand it's not like they had access to the internet you know, they had access to their library. And if their neighbors were Christian, then you were Christian. It just kind of was how it was. You didn't get you didn't get exposed to other things uh, because you didn't get out. You didn't travel. Not very many people did. Bill Wilson does. You know, he's a salesman, so he traveled before he got sober. And he travels a lot after because he's kind of promoting the, you know, the, the, the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous. But for the most part, people didn't travel outside of more than their small town. That's who they ended up falling in love with and marrying was somebody that lived in their town. Those are the people that they got to know. That was their community. They didn't usually move away from that. And if they did, they didn't move far. 
So yeah, to them, an atheist was just completely baffling to them because it wasn't something they had any experience with. So it's it's just important to keep that in mind when reading this. The God stuff isn't there because they hate atheism or that they feel that God's the only answer. It just was to them. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he had succeeded in only keeping sober himself. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture, which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. That alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. Now, it's important also to note that up until AA became a thing there didn't seem to be a whole lot of like actual programs of recovery but that doesn't mean that people didn't recover and then it doesn't mean that somebody else didn't figure out that if they helped other people then they themselves would find peace in that obviously even religions felt that volunteering and doing works of some kind in helping other people was how you you know got closer to god or it was just how you became a better person or you just found peace and happiness in doing that so i'm sure other people figured out that that was a way to get them sober or to stay sober the difference was that these two realized that they could share this message with other people and make it a thing that was the eventual goal that happened here but i just like thinking about the fact that alcoholism as a thing is relatively new for the most part drinking maybe not but and the drunkard is not new, but the idea that there was a requirement that you needed to abstain because you couldn't control it. It was sort of a new concept. It's kind of a novel idea that humans have come up with. You know, before now, it was just, you know, people, certain people couldn't hold their drink, but there wasn't a push to have them stop forever. All right, back to the reading. This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but it failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silksworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady. This is just written weird. I wonder if there's just like a misprint here. The physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never again up to that moment of his death in 1950. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. It's so, this is also important. Something I hear a lot in recent meetings as I've gone to meetings, is that you don't stay recovered. You're never recovered with an ED at the end. The book does mention and use that word and that terminology. And even now, it does talk about a permanent recovery. So I think it is important to kind of have the idea that you can do this forever. But I also kind of get the idea that it's just bad juju to tell yourself that you're never going to drink again. It sort of sets you up for failure. So if in the event you do end up drinking again, then you'll feel like this utter complete failure of some kind. Um, it makes the potential for a relapse a little easier to recover from when you don't set up the expectation that this is permanent. So back to the reading. Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. He never had another drink. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. A second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third at Cleveland. Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up 
The Basic Idea is in Akron, or New York, who were trying to form groups in other cities. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial recovery time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. It was now time, the struggling groups thought, to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began, uh, began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. The flying blind period ended, and AA entered a new phase of its pioneering time. With the appearance of the new book, a great deal began to happen. Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick, the noted clergyman, reviewed it with approval. In the fall of 1939, Fulton Orsler, the editor of Liberty, printed a piece in his magazine called Alcoholics and God. This brought a rush of 800 frantic inquiries into the little New York office, which meanwhile had been established. Each inquiry was painstakingly answered. Pamphlets and books were sent out. Businessmen, traveling out of existing groups, were referred to these prospective newcomers. New groups started up, and it was found, to the astonishment of everyone, that AA's message could be transmitted in the mail as well as by word of mouth. By the end of 1939, it was estimated that 800 alcoholics were on their way to recovery. In the spring of 1940, John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. News of this got on the world wires. Inquiries poured in again and many of the people went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in the Saturday Evening Post and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged us. By the close of 1940, 1941, AA numbered 8,000 members. The mushrooming pro uh, process was in full swing. AA had become a national institution. Now, so I think it's important to really consider a few things. One, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. So at this point, there really wasn't a lot of effort into sharing last names or details about who you were that could be tracked. There wasn't even a lot of effort really into tracking its members. So these numbers are really just a guess to be quite honest. And that's just been kind of the history of AA. You know, the estimate in 2018 was that there was 2,087,840 members and 120,300 AA groups worldwide, which is such a very, very specific number. And I can't imagine that they had a really easy way of figuring that out. You know, when I was the chair of a meeting, we would generally count how many people showed up but that was really just for us that was just to kind of get an idea of which days were doing better and figure out ways of getting those days to succeed and attracting more members like it wasn't really anything that we didn't give that to anybody there's no way that the central office has any idea how many people show up to our meetings it just isn't really something that we relate to them. We could give them a rough, rough estimate, but it's not like they're auditing these meetings. It's not like people, when they do sign up, sign a piece of paper saying how many people are going. With that in mind, the reason why I even bring that up is I honestly think that that number might be smaller. And that could just be based on just a, a general rough estimate. But so many people seem to know about AA, have experience with somebody that's been in AA, have family members or they themselves have been in AA. You know, I don't, I don't really trust that those numbers are specific enough, I guess is what my, my real point is. Uh, but I, again, I get the picture. Like I get the idea of, you can't just say, yeah, we got a whole bunch of people. You know, you have to be specific. It does lend itself to being more credible if you have numbers to back it up. So I get why Bill Wilson 
would want to include that in the preamble. You know, at this point, he's trying to sell a book. He's trying to get more members. So if he says that it's a growing membership and shows numbers to prove that it's a growing membership, it's a good way. It just generates hype. Bill Wilson was the hype man. Never forget that. Out of everybody that was in the program, Bill W. was the hype one. Back to the reading. Our society then entered a fearsome and exciting adolescent period. The test that it faced was this. Could these large numbers of erstwhile erratic alcoholics successfully meet and work together? Would there be quarrels over membership, leadership, and money? Would there be strivings for power and prestige? Would there be schisms which would split AA apart? Guaranteed that the reason why that they started feeling like that this was going to be a thing, that this was going to be a problem, was one, was probably with their experience with religions at this point, and two, because most organizations that didn't have some form of bylaw or written kind of agreed upon rule set all devolved into just complete chaos and infighting and someone trying to take over leadership and be in charge. It's just generally how this stuff works. So this was extremely wise of them this was very very smart of them i can't help but feel that this was also an attempt to kind of stave off the possibility that bill wilson might want to take leadership and i'm not saying that other people did this i think he did this himself knowing himself I think he he really understood that if there wasn't a set of rules that were outside of him, that he would try to take over and become the leader of it in some weird way. Soon, AA was behest by these very problems on every side and in every group. But out of this frightening and very disrupting experience, the conviction grew that AAs had to band together or die separately. We had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene. As we discovered the principles by which the individual alcoholic could live, so we had to evolve principles by which the AA groups and AA as a whole could survive and function effectively. It was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society, that our leaders might serve not to govern, that each group was to be autonomous and there was to be no professional class of therapy, there were to be no fees or dues, our expenses were to be met by our own voluntary contributions, there was to be the least possible organization even in our service centers, our public relations were to be based upon attraction rather than promotion, it was decided that all members ought to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and films, and in no circumstances should we give endorsements, make alliances, or enter public controversies. Now I do think that it is important at some, in some regards that this be maintained even in a society where it's almost impossible to have anonymity the reason why is it is easy for us to decide that somebody's a spokesperson for something that they talk about or are a member of we hear somebody is a member of scientology we immediately assume that they are a scientology we, we find out that a person is a member of you know some church that did did some bullshit and we just decide that they are that entity they are the representation of that entity which just isn't really how any of that works but you know case in point it is also important that we find out that people of all creeds and backgrounds are members like i think it's okay that some people choose to break their anonymity as long as they don't make it a part and make it a point to be the representatory face of it finding out that robert downey jr has been sober for 20 something years because of alcoholics anonymous and that he's good friends with will arnett and both of them attend aa meetings together to me is heartening like, it's amazing to hear that. You've got these two people that are a part of a faction of society that I'll probably never likely belong to or be a part of that go to probably the same kind of meetings I go to. There's a possibility that if I ended up in West Hollywood and needed a meeting that I could end up going to a meeting that one of these folks goes to. And, and I know that that's a possibility because I've heard speaker meetings with famous people and they just show up to these meetings and hang out and they're just a part of the group. They're just people. And... Nobody's too important to make it to a meeting. Nobody's too important to be a part of the fellowship. You know, when I hear Anthony Hopkins do a speaker meeting, 
he's just Tony H. And he gives a good speaker meaning. He doesn't get specific about his lifestyle. He just talks about his problems. He, he just relays his experience, strength, and hope. Yeah, on one hand, it's like, okay, if these people can find their way to sobriety using the same program that I'm using, then there's got to be some truth to it. And that's not, again, to say that they're just more important. They just have more resources available, and they're choosing this. This is what's done it for them. They could go literally to any rehab in the entire world. Robert Downey Jr. probably has gone to most of them. And it's this is what's keeping him sober out of all the out of all the options. You know, there are people in in our government, you know, high ranking government officials that I'm sure are a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's it's really that inclusive is what I'm saying that I could be a part of the same program that these people are part of. So, yeah, anyways, uh, this was the substance of AA's 12 traditions, which are stated in full on page 564 of this book. Though none of these principles had the force of rules or laws, they had become so widely accepted by 1950 that they were confirmed by our first international conference held at Cleveland. Today, the remarkable unity of AA is the one of the greatest assets that our society has. While the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons. The large numbers of recoveries and reunited homes, these made their impressions everywhere. Of alcoholics who came uh, to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program, but great number of these about two out of three began to return as time passed again take these numbers with a grain of salt this isn't nobody measures anything by the way that they just measured this stuff 25 percent like i don't even know how they would get that again they're not tracking people and i say that because it's important for newcomers to know that there isn't some like cursory side project where they're they're tracking people by how long they stay sober and by like what level of uh alcoholic they were before they they entered the program or something like that that's just not how any of that works but again they needed to sell the program so they kind of they probably just anecdotally figured oh hey you know fucking steve and bob didn't make it so that's you know that's two there's 10 of us here so blah 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 they just figured out some numbers you know what i'm saying and i don't fault them for that i don't feel that that's lying in some way i don't think that they i again i think they undersold really the success rate that people were having within this program at the beginning Another reason for the wide acceptance of AA was the administration of friends, friends in medicine, religion, and the press, together with innumerable others who became our able and persistent advocates. Without such support, AA could have made only the slowest progress. Some of the recommendations of AA's early medical and religious friends will be found further on in this book. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization. Neither does AA take any particular medical point of view, though we cooperate widely with the men of medicine as well as those men of religion. Again, it's important to realize here that while they state numerous times that they're not a religious organization, their organization is built on religion, like the ideals of it a lot of the structure of Alcoholics Anonymous in the early beginning parts of it were structured around a lot of the Oxford group's meetings and kind of the tenets that were found inside the Oxford group. They built it kind of on the back of that. So, you know, you could argue, yes, the Oxford group isn't a religious organization, or at least they themselves call themselves that, but there is kind of some religion to it. And that can turn a lot of people off, especially atheists. And I would just really encourage you to kind of set that aside and look at the broader picture here. A lot of the structure that makes a religion work is is a structure that make any organization work that is based more on what the fellows want, what the uh, the the common everyday man wants, 
versus uh, what just one particular member of the organization wants. It is a very democratic process. In order to get a, even a new meeting up, you can't just start one and then say you're a part of AA. You can't, but in order to be actually recognized in the book and be listed on all the websites and stuff, you have to meet a certain requirements, and those requirements are voted on. They're not just decided for you. In order to get a seat at the table and actually have your vote at the, at the assemblies heard um, and get a chance to speak, you have to participate in a certain way that allow that. And it really, it's a lot closer to a union than it is to even any kind of religion. But it is important to know that yes, a lot of this was founded around a lot of ideals that came from religion, but no, it doesn't mean that it's a religious cult. Alcohol being no respecter of persons, we are an accurate cross-section of America, and in distant lands, the same democratic evening up process is now going on. By personal religious affiliation, we include Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, and a sprinkling of Muslims and Buddhists. More than 15% of us are women. So that's obviously changed, right? And I don't have specific numbers on how many men versus women there are in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I know when I go to meetings, it certainly isn't all men. Though there are times where it does seem like there's a lot more than than other times. But, you know, for, for a while, in the beginning parts of Alcoholics Anonymous, it just, one, again, it wasn't acceptable for women to be considered alcoholics, right? Like, it just wasn't something that women could come out and say. It was definitely more frowned upon if a woman were going to be an alcoholic than if a man were... So there was for sure instances where women were probably hiding this from their husbands or even themselves and just made it a point to, I don't know, just not even ever come forth that they were an alcoholic. I don't know enough about the dynamics of why this number would seem so low in the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous versus now to really speak on that with any kind of authority. I just know that they have, you know, clearly changed just by having gone to meetings anecdotally. I can tell that that's the case. At present, our membership is increasing at the rate of about 7% a year, which again, like whatever. So far upon the total number of several millions actual and potential alcoholics in the world, we have made only a scratch. In all probability, we shall never be able to touch more than a fair fraction of the alcoholic problem and all its ramifications. Upon therapy for the alcoholic himself, we surely have no monopoly. See, even then, it's like, they know there's women in here and they're still writing this book for men. It's just kind of the way that it was, man. Yet it is our great hope that all those who have uh, as yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book and will presently join us on the high road to a new freedom. So yeah, we're gonna stop there. The next the next portion is the doctor's opinion, um, but you know that was so Bill Wilson. Like he he, when we get deeper into this book, you can definitely tell when he's writing, and when Doctor Bob's writing, and you know you can tell when Lois is writing. Like you can just tell when other people have started kind of taking over the writing. But it's Bill Wilson that, you know, fancied himself the, you know, kind of literary genius and would throw a little bit more flowery version of just simple text out there. And it's fine. I, you know, it gives it a lot of character. I just kind of find it humorous when you can tell that it switched over to Bill and, you know, he's trying a little harder than he probably needed to. Uh, so yeah, with that, we're going to stop. The next, like I said, the next portion we're going to get into or start reading on is going to be the doctor's opinion. I think all of these portions of the book are important. Seeing the growth of AA before you even get into the meat of AA, I think is important, even though it's based on numbers that are probably fabricated and just this idea that they needed to continue to sell the book and get people interested. It does come from a good place. Like I said, even Bill Wilson's interest in making money off of this did come from a good place. His business aspect, I don't think he was after a get rich 
quick scheme. I don't think he was trying to just propel himself into some sort of fame and notoriety specifically for that. I think he really wanted to spread this message and he felt that was the best way to do it. Making itself financially sound so that it would carry on after the members died, but also living comfortably. Like he been poor plenty of times. He had many business failings before this one, and I don't think that he was going to allow this one to be another failure. But yeah, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to continue to interject little bits of history that I know. I'm probably going to do some research on some aspects of it before I start talking about it in case I get something wrong. And I hope this, uh, you know, while providing kind of my take on, you know, the God aspect, I hope that I can interject also some of the history of AA and just sort of another way of looking at these pages. This stuff was written in the 1930s. Just even the language is weird. Like even just the way that we spoke to one another has completely changed in that time. It's almost a hundred years old. Like it just needs to be taken into account when you're reading this stuff that not everything needs to be taken exactly as it's written. And I know a lot of fundamentalists right now are shaking their fists at their radio or whatever the fuck it is they're listening on this with. They probably have already been doing that because I dropped F-bombs and I've said the word shit a couple times. The foundation of the program still remains even as you update the language and I think it's important to update the language but I also think it's important to look at the reasons why they chose the wording that they did because there were reasons why like I don't think this was this wasn't a rough draft that they released they thought about this stuff a lot of this was voted on there are sections of the book that I don't think were included because they didn't feel that it was necessary and there's a reason why you know collectively AA has fought to maintain that this is the book that they use without updating it or changing the text that's being considered the main source of information part of that comes from kind of a biblical sense of the word is as it's written um, but part of that is also just that they wrote it with intention after trial and error, after a lot of people really reading it and deciding if it was correct. It wasn't just one person who wrote this. And so there is there is a reason to keep that foundation kind of alive there. That being said, there is a rumor that Bill Wilson rewrote the big book and updated all the language in it and it's not really being released. Now that's kind of conspiratory and I don't have anything really to back that up. But if anybody has any information about that, uh, please feel free to share that with me. You can email me at tophatpainter at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the AA podcast. Um, you know, follow along. You can send me a message. You can tell me if I'm completely off base with that or any of the stuff that I say in here. Like I said, I'm, I'm just interested in interacting with people that are trying to stay sober, uh, even if that means getting into an argument with somebody about some bullshit I said in one of my podcasts. So uh, with that, you know, I hope everybody has a good evening day, morning, whatever time it is. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to hopefully having you back.